0: Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host for this episode and resident person with hemophilia. Today's focus, pain. Thanks for listening. We dive in right after this quick word from our featured advertiser.
1: Sanofi is breaking barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com
0: Speaking as someone who experiences pain, I have often found trying to describe my pain accurately to doctors and in studies and surveys to be like trying to answer trick questions or solve incomplete puzzles. Kinda like I was on some sort of Twilight Zone game show. A game show where I don't quite know how things work.
2: How would you rate my pain on a scale of one to 10?
3: I've never thought about my pain in terms of numbers. How do I know if my 5 and 7 is the same as their 5 and 7? Which of these
1: frowny faces best represents your pain? I don't know, I've never studied my face in the mirror while in pain. Is that something people do? I mean, if anything, I just try to put on a good face. Some of this is enough to make anyone feel crazy.
0: There are also very real and stressful considerations that questions and surveys like this can stir up.
4: To what degree has pain interfered with your life? I've tried to not let it, but if I answer that way, will my pain be taken seriously? And to be honest, it hasn't been easy.
1: Oh no, they're gonna make me go to PT. I can't <laughs> miss that much time from work. Will insurance even cover that? Can I say I think I need pain meds? Are they just gonna think I'm an addict or drug seeker? My friends are all on something and I can't keep going on
0: like and this.
3: And I can't keep going on like this. going on
4: like this.
0: That is when it's beyond clear that it's time to do or change something about the way pain is being addressed. But what to do? Medication? Meditation? Exercise? Surgery? And the question centering all of this What research and evidence is there to support the strategies and interventions guiding the treatment and management of people with hemophilia experiencing pain? Where are the gaps? What emerging data is coming about? And what are the priorities going forward? Pain is not an unknown subject. There is data and published research, though I think many would argue not nearly enough and there is even less specific to hemophilia or bleeding disorders related pain. Fortunately, however, great work has been and is continuing to be done, and this episode features expert contributors actively engaged in pain, pain research, pain management with patients in the clinic, and in data-backed strategies and methodologies for addressing pain in people with hemophilia. We're fortunate to have them as contributors, and I'll now give them space to introduce themselves.
5: Hello, my name is Nathalie Roussel. I work at the University of Antwerp as Associate Professor. I'm a physiotherapist and my research domain is musculoskeletal pain, and I recently joined the hemophilia or the bleeding disorder community to do some research to gain more insight into the complexity of pain.
3: My name is Michelle Whitcup. I am the Vice President of Research Strategy at the National Hemophilia Foundation in the United States. My background is that I am trained as a doctoral prepared nurse practitioner. I've been in the bleeding disorder community for about 20 years now. I was recruited into the bleeding disorder community because of my pain experience. Prior to, I worked in chronic pain, palliative care, and oncology, so I had a a lot of pain experience. My research as I came into bleeding disorders is in the experience of pain within the haemophilia community. So pain has been my passion throughout the years.
4: Hello, my name is Paul McLaughlin. I am a clinical academic physiotherapist based at the Haemophilia Treatment Centre at the Royal Free in London. I've been qualified as a physio for 22 years. I've been working in haemophilia for 16. My main clinical interests are pain management, um, but more day-to-day rehabilitation strategies for both acute and chronic issues related to hemophilic musculoskeletal bleeding. My research focus is on developing rehabilitation strategies for management of chronic pain associated with hemophilic arthropathy.
2: I'm Tyler Buckner, I'm an adult and pediatric hematologist at the University of Colorado. I work here at the Hemophilia and Thrombosis Center. I am also a clinical researcher, and my focus is on pain assessment and how we measure pain over time and especially in the clinic. And we clinically are very interested in pain because so many people that we see are affected by it. And a fair amount of our clinical effort is directed towards specifically helping people manage their pain, And so trying our best to learn from that and improve as we go.
0: Thank you again, Natalie, Michelle, Paul, and Tyler for contributing, and additional thanks to Michelle Wickhop and Tyler Buckner for serving as advisors on this content as well. To Tyler's final point just now, it makes sense that if pain is getting a lot of energy and effort directed toward it by clinicians and hemophilia treatment centers, that many clinical researchers would then be inspired to learn more about pain and its intersections with hemophilia over time. But What is pain? Today's episode aims to, amongst other things, define pain, as well as its mechanisms, its prevalence, and how it can manifest within people with hemophilia. Our next episode will cover more related to pain, which I'll touch on at the end of this episode. We already heard Paul use terms like acute and chronic, and there are many, many others, some of which we are soon to hear about. So, what is pain? and, generally speaking, what's notable about the experience of pain in people with hemophilia.
5: I would refer to the definition of pain made by the International Association for the Study of Pain, describing pain as an emotional and sensory experience that might be associated with potential tissue damage or that might be described in terms of potential tissue damage. So it means that it's not absolutely necessary to have tissue damage to suffer from pain. And chronic refers to the timeline generally speaking we speak about chronic pain when it lasts more than three months in some definition six months but chronic really refers to the timeline and pain refers to a subjective experience that a person can have
2: that's a really beautiful summary of how pain is defined i think for me the most important piece of that is that it's a, a pain is a personal experience and we often refer to that as being subjective However, that doesn't mean that we can't ask about pain and measure pain in a way that is helpful.
5: I would add that pain is also described as a multifactorial challenge. Many people think that pain is related to one aspect, but pain is often the result of several influencing factors. So I would include the word multifactorial.
3: Way back in the 60s, Margot McCafferty defined pain as It is whatever the person experiencing it says it is. So again, to Tyler's point, it is a personal subjective experience, and we try to put objective measures around it. We try to define it as chronic, acute, nociceptive, neuropathic, all of these different terms. But to the person experiencing it, it is a very personal, subjective, intimate experience. For me,
6: pain is something that limits my activity or interferes with something that I'm trying to do.
0: That's the voice of Michelle Rice, not to be confused with Michelle Whitcock, who you heard from a bit earlier. I'll try to keep the Michelles clear.
6: As someone with a bleeding disorder, I am familiar with acute pain, but I'm a mild, so I don't I don't really have chronic pain, but I do have two children that have severe hemophilia who do have chronic pain.
0: Michelle Rice has spent most of her professional career in public policy and payer relations as it relates to hemophilia and bleeding disorders, but she contributes to the Global Hemophilia Report today from the perspective of a caregiver and patient.
6: I would say it hasn't been my own pain that, you know, has impacted me greatly. I would say it's more the pain for my children, who are now not really children, they're 32 and 27, but really being able to fully appreciate and empathize and understand what they were feeling and knowing when to listen to them. It's hard when you're looking at somebody else and thinking, oh my gosh, they're in pain and they're saying, no, I'm okay. But you're thinking, if it was me, I would be in pain, right? Being able to really hear them and understand that their threshold for pain, their, the way they feel pain, is different than mine. You know, for me as a parent, that was really difficult to do. Their pain actually caused me pain. It was more emotional pain than physical pain.
0: Pain can be emotional. Pain is often physical. And to the point that Tyler and Michelle Whitcock just made, pain is always personal. And yet, in order to achieve standards and drive care forward, best practices and objective measurements are important. Equally important is that we understand the numerous factors that can be contributing to pain to underscore a point made first by Natalie. So what do we specifically know about the ways in which hemophilia contributes to pain in the short term and in the long term, and how prevalent is pain amongst this population? Paul leads our contributors in addressing right after this quick break.
1: Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries. An important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome back.
0: So how does hemophilia cause pain? And just how prevalent is pain amongst people with hemophilia?
4: Hemophilia is a bleeding disorder we know often manifests with musculoskeletal disease, but the hemophilic hemostasis failure, part of it is bleeding. and blood in itself is not painful but blood going into a confined joint space is painful so it's often that acute episode is the result of a failure of hemostasis and the fact that this blood is somewhere it shouldn't be and then we have the extreme end which is those that live with multiple affected joints with arthropathy who live with chronic episodic sort of acute pain and constant chronic pain so as clinicians we're constantly trying to figure out is it a bleed is it not if it's not a bleed How much of this can we influence? How much can we rectify?
5: The problem in pain research in the bleeding disorders is that seldom definitions are used. So what is asked is left to the interpretation of the individual. And in some papers it's even stated that acute pain is related to bleeding and chronic pain is related to joints. But it's extremely hard for a person to differentiate between both. So the prevalence studies, I really wonder what they have assessed. I'm not sure we can have a correct estimate of the prevalence of pain at this moment.
2: I would agree. I think it depends on who you're asking and how you're asking. I would say that clinically, we all have experienced and and see in our patients that the, the prevalence is quite high. The more common experience across all people with bleeding disorders would be acute pain related to an event such as a bleed into a joint. And that certainly Happens more often in certain groups of patients like those with severe hemophilia, for example, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't ever happen in other groups as well, including those with mild hemophilia.
6: We have a amazing hemophilia treatment center here in Indiana, and they have always been very inclusive as far as treating those of us with mild hemophilia. They're very responsive. When I reach out and say, Something's not right, it doesn't feel right. In my particular situation, fractured my ankle about two years ago, and it has required some surgical intervention. And since a lot of the pain that I have experienced has been around this ankle injury, the orthopedist that I saw is someone who sees many of the hemophilia patients. So again, I feel like they're very responsive.
2: If we jump to the other end and say, what about chronic pain, Pain that's lasting for longer than three months and occurring on at least four days a week with some level of impact on day-to-day function. In our hemophilia population, prevalence of pain matches with some of the numbers that come from studies that Dr. Witkop has done and others. It's probably around 40 or 50% of people have pain that they notice impacting their lives more days than not. 40
0: to 50% of people with hemophilia report that pain is impacting their lives. That is a lot.
2: It's less common in children, but it certainly exists. Some of the data in children in chronic pain with bleeding disorders comes from asking clinicians you know, how prevalent is pain in kids with hemophilia? Those seem to range around 15 to 20% of kids are felt to have pain more often than not. But that will change if you ask the parent of those children or the child themselves. The bottom line is it's out there, and there's enough of it that we really just can't ignore it. My message really for a lot of years has been you just have to ask. You have to ask about pain in all of our patients.
3: And it's not just asking, it's how you ask and the question you ask. We ask a lot about joint pain, but we don't ask about other types of pain. We ask parents or clinicians, but we don't often ask children because we think that they can't interpret their pain. And we rarely ask women. So to understand the wide scope of pain and the types of pain, rather than just referring to it as joint pain, we really don't have an understanding.
0: And is that lack of understanding, and part of the broader problem with how we are currently addressing pain and hemophilia, that amongst the typical care team at a hemophilia treatment center, that no one
3: in particular sees it as their role to address pain? Is that part of the problem? Well, I think it's regretful that we don't have a lot of people who think that pain is part of their role pain evaluation, pain assessment, and pain treatment is part of everyone's role on the multidisciplinary team. We all are assessing a different aspect of their life, their experiences, And so for us to be assessing, evaluating, and making recommendations based upon our expertise in that area is important. Everybody on the multidisciplinary team should be part of the pain assessment model. And I don't know that it's ever been there. And it's something that we need to really work on in the future, my opinion.
4: When you look at the scope of the people we manage in treatment centers, there's a, an unrelenting focus on the biomedical lens that arthritis equals pain, bleed equals pain. Therefore, we have to manage those things. I have lots of patients who have arthritis who don't have pain that bothers them that much. And I've got others who, if they get a joint bleed, it's annoying, but they have a plan of action. They know what to do in their head. They're like, this will be two days and this will happen and this will happen. The problems perhaps is that if someone lives with ongoing long standing chronic joint pain and they appear to manage it relatively well most of the time and they then come to your treatment center asking for help with their chronic pain my first question is always what has changed why are you here what has happened that you are now unable to continue with what you were doing before some part of the multifactorial strategy may be struggling and i think it's just Acknowledging their vast amount of experience of managing their chronic pain and saying, right, you've tried all of those things. What's not working and why?
0: So pain is prevalent, multifactorial and deeply personal. That much is clear. But what are some of the various root causes of pain? Natalie leads discussion on the mechanisms of pain right after this quick break. Did you know that Bloodstream Media has a whole other podcast entirely dedicated to pain? It's true, we're such big fans of pain that we gave it its own show. Now that didn't come out quite right, but it's true. The pain podcast from Bloodstream Media has four seasons of shows all available right now. Take a quick listen.
3: Hi, I'm Mel Forrest, the host of The Pain Pod. We all know that pain is a part of life, But did you know that almost 50 million Americans are dealing with chronic pain? This begs the question, what do we know and understand about pain? On The Pain Pod, we explore this and other pain-related questions by talking with patients, clinicians, and experts about what it's like to manage, treat, and live with chronic pain. So if you're one of those 50 million people who experience chronic pain or just have an interest in learning more about pain, You can find The Pain Pod wherever you listen to podcasts and on bloodstreammedia.com. Or just click on the link in the show notes. And I promise it won't be painful.
0: Subscribe and listen to episodes of Bloodstream's Pain Podcast today. Welcome back. So, what are the various mechanisms of pain within the body, and how does identifying these mechanisms help guide intervention and research priorities?
5: It's. Uh... A very interesting story to see how stimulus is going to the brain and that in the end will lead to pain but we have to remind that in the beginning it starts with a kind of electrical stimulus in the joint for example some information will be sent to the spine and from there it will be sent to the brain and it's only when this stimulus arrives in the brain that you have an interpretation of it that can lead to a sensation or an experience of pain so this is very easy to understand if you cut your finger, or if you have an ankle distortion or an acute bleed in your joint. We have to know that, that the body is a real plastic system, so you can have changes in this transmission. And it's very good because if you are having intense physical activity, you have a system that goes from the brain to the spine and that will interact with these messages that goes to the brain. So it's all about modulation of information in the central nervous system. That's the base of understanding of pain. In chronic pain, we know that there might be alteration in the central nervous system and that might explain a kind of altered central pain problem and that might be the explanation of chronic pain that it's not something that is completely wrong in the joint itself but that something is wrong in the central nervous system, in the brain and it's about interpretation of stimuli. In the first example of an acute pain, we call it nociceptive pain. So you have a problem in the periphery in the second example, we call it nociplastic pain, because the problem in the periphery might be already healed, but the system is used to give the information to the brain. And then we have a third group that's called neuropathic pain, and there you have the nerve that is involved. And there, the experience of the person will be totally different, because there you will have not only pain, which is often lancinating or shooting, but also these symptoms of tingling or cold or maybe electrical shock.
0: So nociceptive pain, related to physical damage to the body and tissues, neuropathic pain, related to damage and pain pertaining to the nerves, and nociplastic pain, related to alterations that have occurred in a person's pain and sensory processing centers. Three distinct causes or mechanisms of pain, so to speak.
5: Differentiating between these three underlying pain mechanisms is important because the management will differ.
0: And as Natalie previously stated, each has different pain symptoms associated with it. Shooting pain, tingling, throbbing, and so on. In theory, I appreciate these distinctions and unique characteristics. But practically speaking, how can someone with hemophilia tell if they're experiencing one type of pain over another, and
5: what does it really even mean? It's still work in progress to explore underlying pain mechanism in people with hemophilia. We do have some evidence that parts of the people with joint pain do have neuropathic pain.
0: Pain related to the nerves and nervous system.
5: And we know that because the results of the questionnaire, but also some clinical tests show that there is a problem with the nerve. But it's a small proportion of the people with joint pain in hemophilia. We believe that a strong majority of people with joint pain do have nociceptive pain. So there is a joint problem that explains the pain.
0: Again, nociceptive pain referring to pain from a physical injury, so like a joint problem.
5: But we are convinced that part of the population with chronic joint pain do have nociplastic pain.
0: From my understanding, of the three, nociplastic pain is the least well understood and certainly an area in need of further research.
5: It's extremely hard to find out because there are different ways to evaluate it. But one of the symptoms is the experience of widespread pain. So pain at many, many locations, including, I would say, decreased pain, pain thresholds It's a way of evaluating pain at places that are not painful in people with hemophilia, such as the forehead or the sternum. So locations where people do not suffer pain. And if you have a decreased pain sensitivity there at those places, then it's probably not nociceptive pain because it cannot be explained by a local joint problem. So that means that part of the population has nociplastic pain. And we believe that it's between 15 and 30 percent based on the big study we're performing now at this moment
2: that there's a lot that is yet to be done in people with bleeding disorders in this very foundational area of pain mechanisms. The system, as beautifully described by Natalie, is designed to detect a stimulus and interpret it. And that involves both amplification of some of the signals as well as dampening or kind of quieting some of these signals when they should be. And that's usually what we would call adaptive. That's an adaptive response. It allows you to be more functional. So if you're exercising and your muscles hurt up to a point, pain from the muscles, you would want that to be dampened so you can continue your exercising. But if you're injured, you want that signal to not be dampened so that you can recognize that as an injury and stop whatever mechanism is hurting your body. Those signals can get thrown out of whack by many things, including pain treatments, opioids affect how those signals are inhibited or amplified, having a a disease that leads to repeated episodes of pain many times during one's life can affect that system, and then many other factors outside of the standard biomedical kind of models of pain, like what is going on in your life that's stressing you? what factors related to your employment or your home life are influencing the way that your brain is interpreting and modulating these signals. And this is where the complexity comes in. And so the research that really needs to be done is to try to tease out how might these systems work differently in someone with a bleeding disorder compared to the general population where a lot of this work has been done to understand these kind of widespread chronic pain syndromes because some of our patients with hemophilia have those syndromes in addition to hemophilia and teasing that out is super important because the treatments differ. I
4: would agree and I think that the problem of pain in hemophilia has been that it's for so long it has been associated predominantly with bleeding. Or the mechanism of bleeding, or the mechanism of treatment of bleeding. And then, if it wasn't bleeding, it's then been associated with you have arthritis or arthropathy, therefore you must have pain. But we know that that isn't always the case. There's this in between when you've got nociception and you've got nociplastic and neuropathic. The International Association for the Study of Pain have agreed that there is also a definition for chronic nociception. The fact that there can be an ongoing presence of irritating nociception from joint that is damaged. So whether that's the exposed bone because the cartilage is damaged, the synovium itself is thickened. So when the synovium bleeds and it tries to heal, you get extra new little nerve vessels that get built into the extra synovium so you have these more exposed nerve endings that are more liable to fire off with very little irritation and so then you get these sort of chemical cascades of inflammation that are happening because of the healing process but also because of how much hemostasis is adequate to make sure that there isn't any leakage at those very small capillaries. These are all questions that we don't know the answer to because nobody's ever really said actually at 10% trough level this is enough or actually it needs to be 15 or 20 or how dry does that capillary bed need to be so that it doesn't perpetuate a, an ongoing inflammatory issue there's multiple cellular issues as well as the person attached to the knee or the joint is yeah there's so many gaps <laughs> i think and we i think as clinicians we're borrowing from osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis or juvenile chronic arthritis, we're always borrowing from where there's other research that feels similar. But again, we have very little in hemophilia to base that on, I think.
3: This is such an area of need. In the last 10 to 15 years, we have done a lot to bring forward the experience of pain. But when it comes to the physiology of pain in bleeding disorders, it's a huge gap. And as Paul just mentioned, the intersection of immunology, orthopedics. This isn't just a hematologic event. It is all of those different areas. And to do research collaboratively with those disciplines would probably be beneficial to our field. But this is a huge area of need. But why?
0: Why is this such an area of need? And what are the next steps toward addressing this need? Paul and Michelle Rice speak to the importance of applying a biopsychosocial lens to approaching pain right after one final break.
1: Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage, as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for US healthcare professionals. Welcome back.
0: As we begin to draw this episode to a close, we address how a perspective shift on pain is critical for continued progress.
4: The problem of pain, depending on who you speak to, can be that it's too biomedical, so there's a constant focus on curative, or we are at a point in chronic pain where it's too psychological, where actually there are some rehabilitation specialists are concerned that there's too much of a focus on self-efficacy and acceptance and actually there's probably a sweet spot in the middle. The biopsychosocial approach was an idea around, rather than being disease focused, it was about disease happens to a person who lives in a society with a family and a job and sort of experiences within that.
6: I am the person in my house who takes care of everything. (laughs) I'm the go-to person for everything. So I've always felt like I don't have a whole lot of time For pain,
4: And so the disease or the symptoms of that disease is only one facet of their being. And if you apply that to any incident, even in hemophilia, you know, the joint bleed is terrible. But if a joint bleed happens just before your family's vacation for two weeks, you've ruined everybody's vacation. And so actually what was a, a normal joint bleed has actually become a big family social issue.
6: I would love to say I'm one of those great compliant adherent patients, but I'm not except for if it comes to pain, because I know that if I'm in pain, I can't be there for my other responsibilities.
4: And so the biopsychosocial lens, I suppose, is observing the bleed isn't really the problem there. And that somebody's distress or anger that we may say in clinic may not necessarily be about the fact that something is painful. It may have been that they've missed an exam or they've missed their driving test again because of haemophilia. And it's acknowledging that is that's crap that's a horrible thing to happen.
6: My family who may count on me, my friends who may be counting on me, my work that may be counting on me. So that's probably the one time that I am actually really compliant because if anything could take me out of commission, it would be pain.
4: Life with pain is difficult because there's constant surveillance and that is the surveillance is of the physical self, but it is a surveillance of, oh, I can't go on holiday there because there's too many cobblestones or I don't want to walk on the beach because I know I won't be able to walk for two days after. So the holidays are dictated by the fact that the ankles don't work well on sand. And so you can kind of see how the biopsychosocial is really important to understand why somebody may be exhibiting behavior in clinic that you think, oh, this is exaggerated for what's really happening here. It's situating the person in their life rather than focusing on the bad knee or the disease itself.
0: What are some other examples of a biopsychosocial approach?
3: We have a registry through NHF called Community Voices and Research that has over 200 women in it. And one of the things we've seen is the impact of bleeding on women and um, their ability to participate in social activities, in work activities, and their resilience. And I think we see this also with men with hemophilia. They experience this horrific pain, and yet They choose what they're going to participate in, where they're going to expend their energy. Work might be very, very important for them. And so they will do everything they can to work or go to school. But then when it comes to being able to participate in their kids' soccer, go to games or family events, they just don't have any energy left. And so the family, as Paul was mentioning, the vacation, or the family events suffer. This impacts their mental health, their family's mental health, and it impacts their relationships also. There's a lot of resiliency, but there's only so much energy and there's so much that you can do. Something has to give. And when we evaluate pain, I think rather than trying to make it a quantitative experience, you know, what is that number? It's better to understand how does this affect your experiences? How is it affecting your life? Because then we can understand how successful our treatment is if we understand how it is impacting their ability to function. That is a good measurement rather than a one to five scale.
2: What Michelle was saying is so important. We can use the latest and greatest and most well-tested and validated patient-reported outcome questionnaire tool, but it is, in my opinion, meaningless unless you talk about what does that mean to that person sitting in front of you. We've got countless examples of scores on those kinds of questionnaires that don't understand, but then we go talk to the person who actually filled out the questionnaires and it becomes clear. I have one person that I can think of who told me that he was able to run through Walmart to chase after his children. And that's the measure of success in treating his pain. We now know we've we've made some progress because that was possible, but there's no questionnaire that says, can you now run through Walmart? Because that's an individual experience. And so that conversation has to happen. If we are trying to standardize the way we measure pain in the clinic, we then still have to go the next step and talk about it and understand exactly how that person's interpreting the questionnaire.
1: Are you able to now run through Walmart while chasing your children?
4: Are you able to be the every woman for everybody in the ways that you're used to?
1: No, there
0: will never be a survey or a questionnaire or a doctor who will ask all the perfect questions for each individual respondent. Discussion with patients and respondents is the only way to fully understand and capture their experiences, though carving out the time during clinic visits remains a challenge. Understanding the pain mechanisms in play enables the creation of a plan that's tailored to the specific drivers of pain in someone, and a biopsychosocial approach to pain must be taken in order to ensure that a person's holistic experience of pain is accounted for during assessment and pain management planning. I would like to thank Michelle Whitkop, Paul McLaughlin, Natalie Roussel, Tyler Buckner, and Michelle Rice for contributing to this episode. Thanks as well to Tyler and Michelle Wickkop for serving as topic advisors. Thank you, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, for serving as the senior advisor on the project. And thank you to Global Hemophilia Report's featured advertiser, Sanofi. Visit sanofihemophilia.com to learn more. That's a wrap for Episode 10 of the Global Hemophilia Report. Thank you for joining us on our entertaining and informative evidence-based journey through the topic of pain in hemophilia. On the next episode, we continue discussion with our contributors on physical therapy, rehabilitation, goal setting, socioeconomic drivers of pain, and pain medication, including discussion on opioids and medical marijuana.
2: Just gonna write this prescription and give you some pills and then my job is done. That is the wrong approach.
3: We've been getting that many people are using medical marijuana and they are finding benefit from it.
0: To be notified when the next episode drops, be sure to subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to share this episode with friends or colleagues in the field, and you'll find the Global Hemophilia Report's social media pages on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For a list of links to the relevant research and other notable resources, please take a look at the program notes for this episode in your podcast player, or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. Thank you to our producer, Keith Corneluk, our editor, Kay Vermeel, graphic designer, Christina Newhard, creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg, executive producers, Amy Board, Rob Bradford, and Ryan Geelan. And thank you to Lawrence Willard for your support. Join us for part two on pain on December 1st. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time.
1: Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.